you to tell me a story. A man and a woman in law a year ago. Listen! I'm sure you'll remember. You killed them. On Halloween. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen, and it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically we talk about a movie that at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 119, and my guest this week had never seen the movie The Crow. And so we decided to fix that, and from I Love That Movie, it's Lisa. And Lisa, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here to talk about this film. Yeah, so I have to say that uh, listening to your show is what inspired me to call you uh, or call you up and, and say, hey, do you want to come on and talk about this? Let people know, what is one of your favorite movies of all time? Dark City. Okay, Dark City. Now, I just covered that a few weeks ago also because you reminded me of it. Um, Dark City is a really great late 90s sci-fi movie, and it, it is absolutely worthy of being a favorite movie it's i think criminally underseen like i i just it's hard to even call it underrated because most people are like dark city i don't even know what that is um but the director of that movie alex proyas had done a movie a few years earlier and that movie was the crow which somehow you hadn't seen before and i'm curious how you missed the crow but loved dark city uh, and have seen that as many times as I assume that you have. So kind of give me the story. How How is it that you missed The Crow? In part because we're about the same age and that this movie was very, very influential in mid-90s kind of fantasy uh, film in general. So I'm just curious the story about how you missed this particular one. So a little bit about me. Know that, okay, this doesn't necessarily, actually it doesn't at all reflect my views today. But I was raised in a pretty conservative Christian household. Okay. Um, and so some of that, and I went to like a very, like a private Christian school. So I didn't get exposure to a lot of music that I would have for someone that was born in 83. Um, my biggest exposure to music when I was like, say, nine or 10, because that's like when this movie came out. Mm-hmm was listening to 106.1 KISS FM because it was a public radio station. So that was the only way that I listened to, you know, as they called it, secular music. Yep. <laughs> so, like, that's how, you know, I'm in the deep south. Uh, and so, you know, I listened to a lot of pop and a lot of hip hop. And I kind of did this on the down low. Mm-hmm. Now, I did listen to later on as I got older, I listened to stuff like Nine Inch Nails and, you know, other like industrial music. But because of that, I didn't really listen to a lot of rock music at all. Like most people my age would have been listening to. So I didn't get exposure to that. On top of that, my parents were a little bit older when they had me. They were in their 30s. So for them, their younger years were in the 60s not the 70s, not the 80s. And so, you know, they're busy raising a kid and they're not really listening to a lot of, you know how like sometimes you have kids and then you're not really listening to all the popular stuff anymore. And so those things combined, I never really, you know, I don't think I ever even went to a concert until I was almost an adult. I think I went to like maybe one in my teenage years. And 
I mean, there was a point in time when I realized how a electric guitar sounded because I'd never seen one play one. I mean, that is like how okay. <laughs> sheltered. And it's like, it's not that I didn't want to listen to it. It's just that like none of my friends were listening to it. Mm-hmm. My parents were, you know, they listened to the Beatles and stuff like that, like stuff from their era. But I kind of, I kind of missed the boat. And then on top of that, I feel like, uh, you know, I was a big nerd. I, I've always have been. And so I was already getting picked on all the time for liking Star Trek too much. Wasn't really eager to add goth to that. (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, I think I feel like goth is like it's like cool now. But I think when we were younger, it was like, you know, you weren't cool. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, certainly when this movie came out and kind of when we were younger, because I'm a couple years older than you, but it was the same sort of thing where like goth was if you were into that. And in that subculture, it was very cool. But anybody that wasn't, it was ostracized. Goth kids were the yeah. were the ones that were the weird kid that always wore black. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of that has changed. This is true. Um, but I, that that makes sense. I kind of get that. And if yeah. you didn't grow up in that music scene, then this movie there there's some of the appeal right there, right? Because there's a lot of rock music influence in. The movie itself, and actually uh, we'll talk about a little bit later in the source material that this is based off of, but I can see that. So I'm I'm curious, though, as you became, uh, as you were getting into movies and you started to really like, uh, say, Dark City, are you one, are are you one to kind of dive into like, oh, here's a director, I want to find other things by them? Or is it more or less like, I like this movie, and then I'm going to move on to the next movie that I like? So, you know... I, I don't want to say anything negative about this movie. I liked it when I watched mm. it. But I think as I got older, too, I just I never really identified with this subculture very much. Like you would okay. think that mm. I would have because I was like, a, like I said, I was a big nerd. And mm. like, you know, I love like The Cure. I love The Cure. But right. I just aesthetically, I never got into goth anything. So I think for a long time, I kind of thought this movie looked like kind of silly to me. I thought, oh, you know, if you really like goth culture and you like the way he's dressed and all that stuff, yes, this is very much for you. But since I didn't really identify with that so much, I just kind of thought, eh, you know. So typically, yeah, I do watch everything that a director makes. But for some reason, this, it just never really it never really stood out to me. It never really grabbed me. So I was kind of like, you know, friends would talk about it, but I never really sat down and watched it. And it's one of those things too, where it's like, it's not like I was going out of my way to avoid it, mm-hmm. but there's all these movies out there that, that you've never seen. You've never sat down and watched. And this was just one of them pretty much. Sure. No, I get that. Plus I wonder too, if some of it, like I know for me, I didn't, I never was a goth kid, but I also didn't shy away from it. But at, at a certain point it went from being a, outsider subculture to hot topic. Yes. And I felt, so I felt like it switched over and then suddenly it was like, well, okay, now you see the crow all over that. Right. It was, Mm -hmm. this was the poster movie for, for that. So I kind of, I I get that. So you say that you enjoyed it and that's, I'm really happy to hear that. Um, (laughs) I mean, I don't want to come on here and make enemies. This is a very (laughs) popular movie. (laughs) Well, you know, if you don't like something, you don't like it. If it doesn't resonate with you. But I'm I'm curious. So as a first watch and being a fan of the director, but not necessarily the the type of uh, movie that was, what sort of ideas did you have going into it other than sort of or other than the goth aspects of things? Did you know much about kind of the, the story or what it, you know, what it was about? I knew it was based on a comic book, and my impression of it is that it heavily relied on the aesthetic of the film. 
you know, mm-hmm. that it was a lot of, a lot about the visuals more so than the story. Yeah. Um, that, and, and, you know, just, I didn't think it was like a, you know, I think what appealed to me about dark city is to me, that was like a high level concept. And I think this one seemed more, uh, more, more action and more comic booky, which isn't a criticism. It's just how I perceived the film. Sure. Sure. And it is very much that the, the, the comic book that it was based on was written and drawn by James O'Barr and it came about, I believe it was 1989. Um, and it was an independently released one, uh, or independent con, uh, comic that be, was part of a, a real small label, but it was all in black and white. And when Alex Proyas, who is the director that we've mentioned a few times now, I never said his name, I don't think, but when he, he was a fan of the comic and was offered to direct this as kind of his first, I don't know if it was his very first, but it was kind of his first bigger uh, film. He had come from music videos uh, that he was doing in Australia. And he originally wanted to direct it uh, and, and shoot it in black and white. And have flashbacks have color, but the everything else be black and white. And the studio was kind of like, no. Um, they seem to always hate that. Yeah, <laughs> they always and, push back on that. And I even I even saw some interviews with Brandon Lee about that and saying like, I would love to do it that way, but unfortunately, you just can't. Like the studio won't let you, because at the time, Paramount Pictures had the rights to it. They had bought the rights. They wanted to make it. Now the rumor is that originally they wanted to do it as a musical style oh, like wow. more of a musical film i could i could really see that though especially with he's the characters like in a band in a rock band yes um and and it's interesting because in the comic eric is not in a rock band but he's influenced uh. his design was influenced by like iggy pop especially mm-hmm. i could um, see that yeah and things like that but he um so paramount wanted to do it as a musical starring michael jackson and when Proyas was brought on, he's like, I don't want to do that at all. So they went in a different <laughs> in direction. In hindsight, a good idea. <laughs> they, they made the right choice. Yeah. Um, now, Brandon Lee was not the first choice to play Eric. In fact, James O'Barr, I believe I read that he originally wanted Johnny Depp, which a young Johnny Depp, I could have seen doing that. Uh, he's not quite as tall as Brandon Lee, but he was a, you know, he's, a, he's got a music background. Um, and Edward Scissorhands, I mean, you know, yeah, this, true. It, the look. it reminded me a lot of that. Yeah. Um, and I think I can't remember. There was a couple of other names I heard. River Phoenix, I think, was one. Mm-hmm. Um, but they and, and initially Obar wasn't super keen on Brandon Lee because he had seen Showdown in Little Tokyo, which was kind of his movie right before this, which was much more of an action oriented kung fu film. And the worry was that it was going to go that route. But um, yeah. Proyas wanted Brandon Lee, so he sent him a script, and Brandon Lee just apparently loved it and just dove in uh, to the point where he lost forty pounds before making this movie and oh, wow. got himself real, real thinned up. And they they didn't overdo the martial arts aspects of things, which I kind of it fits the character better than to have him so. doing a lot of like real crazy martial arts, which I like. And I also like how uh, it's a very simple story. It's just a mm-hmm. revenge story, right? Guy, long, long and short of it is uh, a guy and his fiance are killed. And a year later, he comes back from the dead for reasons and can avenge their death. Uh, and that's basically it. Now, the, the comic book, the backstory to that was that James O'Barr, um, he was engaged and his fiance, I believe, was killed in a car accident 
or hit oh, by, wow. a, or maybe it was hit by a drunk driver, I think is what it was. And so he started spiraling into some depression and having a whole lot of trouble. And he used the comic book as sort of his outlet for that. And mm-hmm. the comic is very much about dealing with those feelings and grief. And so the, the story beats that they changed to make it into a movie are kind of interesting because uh, the, uh, the comic version of Eric doesn't have a last name, but he's also, as the crow, basically just indestructible. There isn't that, that kind of hero's journey where he's got to overcome some obstacles. He just mows through the bad guys. Um, mm-hmm. And so when they cha- they changed the story up a little bit, which I liked. There's, an, uh, there's a side character that unfortunately got cut who was going to be played by Michael Berryman, which I love Michael Berryman. He's just got this really great look to him. He's the guy from The Hills Have Eyes. And okay. uh, the big ugly biker from the end of Weird Science. He's got that face uh-huh. that he always looks super intimidating. Well, he was playing a character called the Skull Cowboy. Now, in the comic, the way the crow works is they they have to stay on their revenge path. And if they oh, deviate okay. from that, they lose their power. Uh-huh. So in the comic, the Skull Cowboy kind of lays that out for him when he comes back. And like, look, this is what you got to do. You can't do anything else. If you stray away from it, you won't be able to go into the afterlife. And originally they were kind of going in that direction. And when, when they were rewriting things, they took that character out. But there are some deleted scenes you can find on YouTube that show the Skull Cowboy, which in some ways I'm kind of glad because it definitely looked like a guy wearing a rubber suit. But Oh, wow. But the concept was kind of neat. So yeah, in... in in the movie, there are times where you're like, wait, so what is Eric able to do as the crow? Like he's seemingly indestructible, but he has telepathic powers of indeterminate origin and he can disappear and appear at will, I guess. They don't really explain it. The book, I believe, gives a little more of that backstory, but they, with the way things got restructured, it's just sort of hand wavy, like he can do what he needs to. Um mm-hmm. There was a deleted scene when he first comes back from the grave. Um, so, you know, the beginning of the movie where the guys wreck the arcades, the arcade cabinets yeah. and all that and blow that up. Apparently, there was there's a deleted scene where he's stumbling down. Eric is stumbling down a um, alleyway and a woman comes out of that building. And when he touches her, he gets the flashes of her memories at that point. And so that's kind of oh, your okay. first that that sort of tips you off that he's got this ability. Then he uses it again later with Albrecht, and then he uses it at the end. But mm-hmm. again, the movie sort of kind of glosses over some of that. And in, in some ways, I think it works. Um, yeah, I think you can fill in the gaps with your own imagination. But I did find myself asking questions out loud <laughs> to my husband, who has seen the movie several times, and he was getting a little annoyed with me. I'm sure. Because <laughs> like, wait. Like, Wait, um, <laughs> you, like especially at that scene where he said, um, "Don't worry, I, your memories help me, and so that's how I got out of it. They saved me." And he goes, "Cool," you know. He's like, "Good," and I was like, "But how would he know that? Or even <laughs> what he means? Because he wasn't, he didn't see." Yeah. Anyway, I, you know, and Nick was like, "Well, it's not real, Lisa." Like, you know, and I was like, "Okay, fine, fine, my fine." One but of, I'm glad to hear I'm not the only person that that felt a little lost at times. But again, oh, I sure. can and, and I think what I like about it is similar to how Dark City, and especially the Dark City director's cut, lets the audience fill in a lot of gaps. Good point. Proyas is, is actually really good at that in his direction, where you can put the pieces together without having to be spoon-fed all of them. 
through his visuals. His visuals do a good job of that. And I feel like what this movie did was set up his what he was going to do in Dark City a few years later. Because I feel like it took that same aesthetic and it uh, it polished it and it it rounded off some of the rough edges and made a better version of that. Because visually, there's a lot of similarities between these two. It's a very similar color palette. Um, mm-hmm. It's all washed out. It's all at night. They actually... Um, made it a point for this movie in particular to remove all cool colors, all blues and greens. Interesting. Um, They didn't want them. Yeah. They didn't want them in the color palette at all. And they wanted a lot of any color was going to be warm stuff, especially red. Red is the color of revenge. So, and, and they wanted this black and white look to everything, even though it was shot in color. So I kind of liked that. Um, And then the, the, the flashbacks are very vibrant and a lot of color. It's still very reds and warm tones. But I feel like he took that and, and like I say, he just refined that when he got to Dark City. Um, because for me, Dark City is the best film that Alex Proyas has made. Like, I Yeah, I agree that it's a lot more polished. I think uh, this movie is, you know, the visuals are, like you said, pretty striking they kind of remind me a lot of music videos. And I Mm -hmm. think a lot of directors during this time in the 90s were highly influenced by music videos or came from directing music videos. And that really, I mean, it really did change filmmaking for a while. I think some of that looks dated now a little bit. Like, you know, a younger person might watch that movie and go like, why are they slowing down like this at this scene? Like, you know, but like those of us that remember this time are like, I mean, we totally forgive it because we grew up in that time and we're like, this is just stylistically, there was a lot of experimenting going on. You know, not all of it stuck. Mm -hmm. And I think by the time he got to Dark City, he had really refined ways to use visual enhancements without it being quite so in your face. But at the same time, because I think the main character is supposed to be a rock star and this Mm -hmm. is such a deeply stylized gothic film I think that that's fine in this setting. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And you're right. This is definitely of that era of, you know, early Michael Bay, David Fincher, Russell Mulcahy, you know, uh, Proyas came from doing music videos in Australia. So it's that MTV generation of directors that started off mm-hmm. in the 80s doing their music videos. And by this time, studios are like, hey, we'll give you some money to make a movie. So they do what they're good at. And yeah. you see all of those directors refined that. Um, and got better at it. Some of them sort of stagnated, uh, Michael Bay, and didn't really <laughs> evolve beyond that. Um, and others definitely did, like Fincher. I mean, David Fincher, now, you, you, you would think he just started off making movies. Yeah, so, fun fact. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, fun fact. Uh, I, I was at a birthday party yesterday, and I was wearing an MTV shirt that I got at, like, Target. Mm-hmm. And somebody said, now... Do you know what MTV started out as? It was someone older than me. And I oh. went, I, I, at first I thought it was a trick question. I was like, <laughs> is, was it not music, television? You know, but then he was like, it used to be music videos. <laughs> and my friend was like, I think we're older than you think we are. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that. Question. Oh, well, that's... I think I remember that. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so we touched a little bit on the cast, but I kind of want to talk about the cast because this has a really good cast of characters in it. Um, it's a very, as I mentioned, a very simple story. And for me, I like that. I like a simple story, but make my characters more compelling. It doesn't, not everything has to be, 
um, you know, LA Confidential or the usual suspects and have this weaving plot. You can have a very simple straight ahead plot, but you get Brandon Lee. Brand- Brandon Lee is amazing in this movie. Um, I agree. Yeah. It, there's no way to talk about the crow without talking about the tragedy that happened on the set of the crow. And that was Brandon Lee. And this might be his best performance. It also sadly was his last performance for anyone that doesn't know. Brandon Lee died making this movie. Um, and it was in a, uh, a freak accident on set there. There's depending on how you want to look at it, there could be some negligence involved, but essentially um, for those that don't know when weapons show up in a movie, there are two types of weapons. There are weapons that can look real and take a dummy bullet, which is a bullet that has a casing and a projectile, but no powder. That's what, anytime you see a bullet being loaded, uh, that's what they're using. And then they have blank firing weapons. Now, in this instance, there was a weapon that was modified to do both. It could accept your regular bullet charges, but also fire blanks. Um, Typically, you wouldn't have that. You'd have two different weapons because you'd have one that had no way for a projectile to come out of the barrel that would fire blanks. Um, And then you would have something that could be loaded with dummy rounds. But uh, some of it was budgetary reasons. Some of it was that they had a weapons master who could take care of all of that but they had a weapon that did both. And, and unfortunately a dummy round was in the weapon and it got loose and uh, got lodged in the barrel. And then later on that, that same weapon was loaded with a blank. And when that blank was fired, it fired the projectile out just like a regular 44 caliber bullet. And it struck Brandon Lee in the abdomen and lodged in his spine. And he ended up dying uh, from his wounds on set. It's tragic, tragic accident, and it nearly stopped this movie from even coming out. Um, they Paramount shut down production, and it wasn't going to be finished. Uh, Alex Proyas actually didn't even want to finish it at one point, from what I hear. Uh, he was eventually convinced at, to honor Brandon Lee and finish the movie. Um, they So the original budget for this was $18 million. And uh, another company came along and paid an additional $8 million, I believe is the figure that I've heard to finish the movie with some visual effects in order to get Brandon Lee in it. There are, there are some shots in this you can tell are digitally composited and some others that um, you can't that are using Brandon, Brandon Lee's face. They recreated it for and put it on a stunt double's body, which is incredible to think about them doing something like that kind of a composite in 94. Um, and uh, then there's a lot of shots that are of him from behind or in shadow so they can have a stunt double. Um, in fact, the stunt double, uh, for Brandon Lee in this movie was Chad Stahelski, uh, who went on to be Keanu Reeves stunt double in the matrix and now is a director, uh, and directed John Wick. Wow. So that's a great story. That's pretty fun, but it's, it's, it's such a tragic accident, but did you notice like that? And a lot of it is that first part where he comes out of the grave and then he's going back to his apartment. That's where a lot of that reconstruction happened. They sort of rewrote some stuff to fit in for all of that, but were you able to kind of see that or sort of, did it feel odd to you at all? No, I mean, it, you know, I think this is actually another reason why I didn't see this movie for a long time. I think, uh, I knew that. And and like I said, I was pretty young when this movie came out and Mm. that really disturbed me. I think it was like one of the first like big 
Hollywood deaths that I heard about, and it was kind of this movie was pitched to me like sort of as like this guy died, but they still made the movie, and it just I thought that was so tragic and sad. It kind of it kind of hurt my enjoyment of wanting to see it even back then. I can understand that. And even now, I, I admit, like you know, not having quite the same fandom for this as others do, it is like. I mean, that is a choice to, like, finish the film despite that. And, you know, I, I am familiar with that story about how it happened. You know, the, the blanks, it's, uh, you know, guns are very dangerous. And that's super disappointing that uh, that it was done for budgetary reasons. And I'm, now I mean, that's, I think that is me assuming, is that, is I that kind say. of oh, that, okay, that okay. is some conjecture um, on my part. Gotcha. Oh, well, well, no worries. I, regardless, I, I do think that some negligence was happened otherwise it wouldn't have happened mm -hmm. uh, and i do think on most movies they don't do it that way uh probably because of the things like accidents like this i know that the actor uh michael mass that plays uh fun boy was pretty like traumatized by the incident and didn't i don't think he's ever even seen the film um but yeah. um as far as noticing it in the movie i didn't really notice it but then again there's so much um you know, there's so many, we talked about kind of like filters and, you know, stylistic choices already. Mm -hmm. So I guess I didn't really notice it and I wasn't really looking for it. I think knowing what happened, I'm just kind of like, I'm just going to watch it and not really try to look for that. I think if I saw it a second time, I might notice it more. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, Cause there's a, like, there's one or two times where you say, oh, that's clearly like, there's actually one where they use the same shot twice. They just took him mm. they they kind of digitally composite him walking um in the rain into another shot with a different background and if you're looking gotcha. for it you can see it but you're right with the stylization that they do with it with the filters and all the cuts and everything and kind of the editing and, and directorial style you can hide a lot of it now the the one that i always liked was the that kind of hero shot where he's got the crow on his shoulder in the window as it as it backs away that's Brandon yeah. Lee's face digitally composited onto the stunt double's body. Oh, yeah. I definitely did not notice that. And I, I wonder what it would be like to watch this movie and not know that he died. Like, I wonder what that experience is like. You know, that would be would interesting. Would you notice it? Yeah. Would, I would you be, be like, why is there all this digital stuff? <laughs> yeah. And, and they did a ton. Like, they did a lot of it in that early part of the movie, especially because the scene where he was tragically shot was one of the last things they, they did. It was like three days from yeah. wrapping. So there wasn't a lot of reshoots they had to do. And there's a few times where you're like, Oh, if you know what happened, you can be like, yeah, that's probably not Brandon Lee there because it's just a, a silhouette. You know, they, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's tragic, you know, and, and Folks in the chat are saying you wonder if uh, movie studios stopped skimping on things. And I'm sure there were probably some changes that were made to a lot of stuff after this happened. There was a negligence lawsuit uh, with, the, with the producer and studio and Michael Massey or Matt uh, Massey. I can't, I can't remember how to pronounce his last name, but um, after, after the fact. And you're right. He stopped acting for a year um, and has said he basically went home to New York and and just didn't do anything for a year. Now he did get back into acting. Um, in fact, he was in a movie in 95. So his next thing was seven. Um, yeah. In a small role in that. But according to what I read, you're right. He never watched the movie afterwards. He, he went, he sadly passed away in 2016, I think, or 2018. Um, having never seen the movie because it just, 
it was I mean he was he was the one that pulled the trigger. Yeah, he I was, can't imagine what that. the oh. guilt would be like even though obviously he didn't want that to happen and there's been other, you know, Hollywood mishaps that mm-hmm. have resulted in death and there's, you know, there's like a few famous ones. I always think about like the Twilight Zone movie. Yeah, that's um, the one that comes to mind first yeah, probably. Yeah, it's like because it's so awful and so like preventable you know it's like sometimes things happen and you're like oh well who could have known but like with this movie you're kind of like well that could have been prevented you know and there's many movies that are filmed where this doesn't happen so it does make you really think about that but um but yeah I, i don't think it's you know now that i have more distance from that and and can watch the movie i uh i didn't really notice it so much so kudos to the to the uh studio for being able to pull that off yeah, I mean, it, it took a good bit of work and obviously almost doubled the budget uh, of the movie. Yeah. Um, but I think in the end, if you're going to release the film and do it as a tribute to Brandon Lee, I think it was right. worth it because he he is now remembered for this movie. And the one, my my only question always is, how good could his career have been? But you can say the exact same thing about Brandon Lee's father, Bruce Lee, because he also died tragically young. And both of them were on the cusp of superstardom. And Bruce Lee went on to be Bruce Lee. Like, that's the name that you know. And I just wonder how Brandon Lee's career could have gone. Because his performance in this is really good. He's compelling. He's engaging. He's charming. But then when when there were scenes that call for him to be on the hairy edge and a little, little bit crazy, like, he pulls that off. I the the image of him when he walks into fun boy's apartment and he's got the guitar slung over his shoulder and he's uh kind of rolling his head around that light bulb that's just hanging there the bare light bulb like that image of that is like burned into my memory because it's just this weird on the edge like crazy person and then he flips into revenge mode like i i just really 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 enjoy him in this movie so never having watched it till now and being, I mean, I think I'm always going to relate like everything to Batman somehow, but <laughs> I, I seriously wondered, like, I mean, there's an obvious like hero thing, you know, going on, but I, I felt like his look, uh, I wondered if that was like an inspiration for Heath Ledger's Joker, because I felt like even though the Joker's a bad guy, there was something about like the wet hair and mm-hmm. like movements and like even the makeup that I found to be kind of similar it was almost like somebody saw that and thought well what if we what if he was a bad guy you know because I mean he kind of almost looks like a bad guy yeah no and you know I bet there was at least a little bit I know for a fact that the look of the crow was an inspiration to the the professional wrestler sting because a couple years after this movie came out he changed his character completely and started dressing he grew his hair longer dyed it black face painted like the crow. He was known as the crow sting basically by fans. Um, and so he definitely, this movie had a lot of influence in that way. And you're right. It it does. He does kind of look a little bit like a villain. I know, I know I wanted, I wanted Brandon Lee's hair in this movie for the (laughs) longest time. Uh, he just, he just looked great. And I never knew until this watching that he had lost 40 pounds prior to making this. Um, and that's impressive in its own right because he's already he was he's a physical specimen like there's shots of him shirtless and he definitely looks like the character from the comic because the comic character mm-hmm. was very thin and wiry and he he got that and uh 
Yeah, it, it's and it's there's some haunting aspects to the portrayal as well that I think in some ways get colored through the lens of the tragedy that happened. I know one interview I saw with Brandon Lee, he ends it with this quote from a book and it's chilling to listen to him talk about it because the, the quote is about how, you know, we only have uh, so much time. Um, and, wow. but we always feel like we have forever. Like how many more times are you going to see a full moon? It may only be 20, but it feels like an infinite number and all this kind of stuff. And I'm listening to this and I'm just thinking, holy crap, like that's chilling to think about. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's another thing that made me think about Heath Ledger too, is that in much yeah. the same way, it's a very tragic death. It's a huge performance. And I don't know if you were going to touch on this as well, but, you know, you can't help but think about I remember growing up just hearing all the conspiracy theories because it is it is weird. I mean, movies are always shot out of order anyway, but it Mm -hmm. is really incredibly fortunate and unfortunate the way that that happened, because, you know, the very last scene is a scene that he gets killed. The first scene in the movie is a scene that he they were filming that he died. But you know, because they'd shot the rest of the movie, they could even put it out. I mean, what if that was the first scene they had filmed, you know? And so a lot of people, there was a lot of speculation, like that's so suspicious. And, you know, his father's death, even though it was different, like you said, he was young. Um, You know, people talked about a a Lee curse or some, some sort of conspiracy theory, because it's just like when something like this happens, especially twice, it's just so terrible you know and so yeah i don't know that that kind of hangs over the movie and then on top of that the movie's gothic i mean yeah you know it's just like well, a lot of stuff all at once and not only that but the movie had a reputation for being cursed prior to what happened to brandon lee because of other onset injuries um he so brandon lee cut himself on uh some breakaway glass filming one one shot um in gideon's mm. in the pawn shop some of the glass cut his hand um, wow. there was a, uh, what was it? I think there was a carpenter that put a screwdriver through his hand working on something. There was a welder that, uh, nearly got electrocuted, uh, making the movie, like all sorts of weird stuff. And this was a piece of trivia. So take for that what you will. But, um, when he cut his hand on the glass, the actor in that scene, John Polito had said, you know, you need to be careful, uh, on, you know, on a movie set, like you might, you might get hurt doing some of this kind of stuff. Um, so it's just like, man, there's there. It's weird to have this movie that, that has all these other accidents. And then this one just overarching, like extremely tragic accident. So, but out of all of that, we got an incredible performance from sadly an actor. We lost 28 years old. He was only 28 Gosh. years old. And I just, th- his charisma was off the charts. Like, and he had, he he had the look. He had what you needed to be a star. Uh, and this was really going to rocket him. And thankfully, you know, the movie was well-received and it's had the following that it has so that his legacy lives on. Um, but there's there's so many good actors in this movie, too. Uh, we mentioned Michael Massey. Ma- I'm going to go with Massey because that seems like maybe that's how it's pronounced. He was one of those character actors that is uh, that guy. Which... You, there's a lot of those in this movie, but he's one of those where you see him in something and you remember him. Like I, I distinctly remember him in seven and he's in that movie for two minutes at most. But I, I remember he was in that movie and you see him and so he's got a look. Um, and 
he in the sound he's got that gravel there's a few different voices in this and it was actually one of my notes like this movie's got some great voices ernie hudson uh as detective albrecht or sergeant albrecht i'm not sure exactly what his rank is in the detroit police force because <laughs> he uh he keeps getting demoted um he's got you know i mean Ernie Hudson's got a smooth voice. I, I love listening to him talk. He was fun in this movie too. Like he, yeah, he gets some of the moments of levity. the The scene in his apartment is great because it's mm-hmm. it's a great character moment for Eric, and he gets to play off of somebody who isn't um isn't out for anything from him, just yeah, wants true. to help. So that was that was kind of cool. Um, Tony Todd is in the movie as a character that never gets named. And this is after Candyman, so like he's no he's a known quantity wow. at this point, and he you know for for being in the movie not that much like and that's the thing a lot of these side characters aren't aren't in a lot of scenes, but then you think about like Tony Todd and the career that he's had since since his movie came out. Uh, plus, he had a great uh, I love the hat that he was wearing that leather <laughs> like yeah whatever that was um john polito i mentioned uh, is another one of those guys that has a very distinctive gravelly voice um and has some of my favorite moments in the movie uh i just love he's he he does that put upon but still snarky guy so well like he's he's that most of the time that you see him in in anything but i love it and then michael wincott uh there's he he takes the gravel voice crown for this movie (laughs) <laughs> um, because he just sounds like he gargles with gravel. Uh, but he was playing the character of Top Dollar. And uh, again, a character that's not named, but um, in the movies, his his name is never spoken, but that's what he was in the credits. Um, also with fantastic hair. I don't know if that was a wig or not. But... I was wondering that. So he, he's like the main... Uh, <laughs> the main bad The guy. main boss, yeah. Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that about the names because I was like, I don't feel like I heard their names. There were some really interesting choices with, like, <laughs> the dialect. I was like, is this, like, a 90s thing I don't remember? Or, like, I guess it's because they're in Detroit. But I thought it was interesting. Like, they sounded very almost, like, southern to me. So and there's like, a little bit of that. Kingpin sound like that? I yeah. thought that was interesting. I didn't it, know if that was something that was touched on in the comics. Um, not really. So actually, interestingly, in the comics, Top Dollar isn't the crime boss. Um, okay. The the gang is run by T Bird, who is the guy that has the car, uh, played by um, okay. David David Patrick Kelly, who, mm-hmm. if you don't remember him from Warriors, you have at least heard him saying, "Warriors come out and play." Oh my gosh! I didn't realize that was him. Yeah. And wow. Appara- yeah, and I guess Brandon Lee was a huge fan of that movie and wanted. Oh, him. who wouldn't be? So right. But David Patrick Kelly is T-Bird. In the comics, T-Bird runs the gang. And okay. uh, Funboy, Tintin, there's another character named Tom Tom, and then uh, Top Dollar work for T-Bird. So they, I see. they restructured it a little bit. They've moved Top Dollar to being a, a kingpin more, kind of running everything. Given They, they wanted mm-hmm. an end boss. Because again, in the comic, Eric just sort of mows through everybody. Like there's almost no resistance. He's, he's just indestructible and he knows it. And it's just about, it's not about him trying to overcome anything. It's just about him getting his revenge. Gotcha. So when they move things around, they change the character of Tom, Tom, probably because having Tintin and Tom, Tom and T-Bird is just too much. (laughs) Too many T's. (laughs) Too many T's. So they made Skank, who was the uh, speed, speed freak. um, Oh yeah. 
probably my least favorite of the gang just because, you know, he's got meth mouth and he's talking a million miles an hour and he's, he's, oh, sorry. Uh, That felt kind of, um, warriors ish when he was like rambling in that one scene. I actually thought about that movie. And so knowing that connection with David Patrick Kelly makes sense. Yeah. No, David Patrick Kelly as T-Bird. Oh, I love him in this. Like T-Bird. Yeah. T-Bird is so much fun in this because he has a really odd way of speaking. Yes. Like, <laughs> he uses words in ways that don't make sense, but then still do. Like one of my favorite lines in this is one of my crew got himself perished. It's like, yeah, yeah, you're so close to using that word. Right. <laughs> and, and that's what makes it memorable um, is for him yeah. to do that. And he's got that great car. He's he, like he, his first line in the movie is talking about Lake Erie catching on fire, which Technically, it was a river that fed into Lake Erie, but the story is pretty much true. Um, Interesting. And, uh, but yeah, David Patrick Kelly, and then of course he has the death where he's getting duct taped to the seat, and he keeps just keeps yelling, "There ain't no coming back." Um, like that's a memorable moment in the movie too. And absolutely, he's, he's just great. Uh, Tintin was played by Lawrence Mason. Now, you will remember this when I mention it, but Lawrence Mason shows up in one of my favorite movies of all time, which I came on your show to talk about, and that's Hackers. Lawrence Mason that's was Lord right. Nikon. So oh, yeah. He, he, and I love this movie too, and they were back-to-back. He did Tintin, and then he played Lord Nikon the next year in uh, 95's Hackers. And so, and I like the fact that he, he took enough time, because he's not, again, he's not in the movie for that long. He's the first one to get killed. And, Mm -hmm. but he took the time to learn enough knife fighting to at least appear, um, competent. He, uh, stunt coordinator, Jeff Imada, um, taught him so that he would look, you know, look the part. And again, it's another one of those memorable scenes, right? Where he's, he's throwing knives at, uh, at Eric and Eric's just knocking him out of the way. And I've always thought that was a great kind of, uh, setup for how badass is your hero. Right. He's, yeah. He's just a side spinning knife and he's knocking it out of the way and he's catching knives in midair. Like it's such a cool scene. And Lawrence Mason just nails this character that he's in the movie for all of five minutes for. Um, and then fun boy, fun boy is tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mostly because he's the, like him and skank are the big drug addicts and yes. that's always hard to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, so and there was like, there's a, there's a subplot. So did you notice how uh, Eric starts off and he's wearing like the kind of spandexy shirt and he's got the jacket and all that. And then suddenly out of nowhere, his arms are wrapped in electrical tape. Yeah. I noticed that it got, his outfit got increasingly goth to where mm-hmm. like, you know, like the, later in the movie too, he's got sort of like that almost like corset, yeah, like bottom part of a corset. And I, I was like, I did have the thought of like, Oh, his outfit's evolving. Like, what's going on? <laughs> so, yeah, explain that. I'm, I'm interested yeah. in that for sure. So some of that is, I had mentioned earlier, where in the comic, the crow, um, he has to stay on his revenge path or he loses his powers. And he And he can't go back. And that's what yeah. the Skull Cowboy tells him. Well, the, the way the movie was going to be is that scene where he goes and he gets Fun Boy and then he helps Darla. He helps Sarah's mm-hmm. mom. That was after that scene, he gets attacked and cut and he doesn't heal right away from it because he did something that wasn't killing the people that killed him. And so he became weaker. 
So yeah. it wasn't like the crow, basically in the comic, the crow doesn't hold his power. That was a construct made into the movie. Um, and it, it's, it's all about, he has to stay on his revenge path. So that was basically what that was, is the duct tape was covering up the wounds um, or the, not duct tape, okay. the electrical tape and kind of the way that things changed around, but that was ultimately dropped. So it just suddenly he has different, uh, a slightly different look because I always wondered that I'm like, wait, when did he put that on and why? I mean, it looks cool. <laughs> I, I'm not going to complain yeah. about how it looks, but it was one of those that again, they just, they don't even explain. It's never brought up. So. That scene where he, you know, forces the morphine out of Darla's arm too, is like crazy. Um, but yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, because there's there's a pretty strong like anti drug message too in the movie, which I thought was interesting. But um, yeah, yeah, I kind of thought it was just aesthetics, but that makes that makes it make more sense. Well, and and then later on when he has to rescue Sarah, that's why he does that. That's originally why he didn't have his invincibility was because he was he was now doing something different. He was basically, mm-hmm. and I think if I remember correctly there was going to be one other scene with the skull cowboy who, who essentially tells him you can't go rescue Sarah or you can't go to the afterlife. And he goes and rescues her anyway, knowing that he won't have uh, his powers. Gotcha. Cause I, in the movie he says it's because the crow got hurt. Right. So they, yeah. I guess they changed that at some point. Mm-hmm. Cause like I said that too, I was like, well, why is he shot now? And again, <laughs> my husband was like, cause of the crow. And I went, Oh, did we know that before? <laughs> you know, I was like getting a little confused, but uh, he was like, he basically was just like, you need to pay attention. I'm like, okay, I am mean, paying attention. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's like, I do think like when you've seen the movie a couple of times, I think you fill in those blanks naturally. And I know mm-hmm. that I've done that for movies that I, I mean, hey, you know, one of my favorite movies is full of blanks and that's um, Donnie Darko. I mean, oh, yeah. has a ton of blanks unless you watch the director's cut, which even then, so I, I don't have a problem filling in blanks at all. I was just kind of like, did I miss something? But that kind of makes sense that they sort of had these other scenes that they shot and things that ways they were going to explain it. And then they kind of retcon that so that mm-hmm. it's a little bit different. Okay, cool. And I also think, too, if this was something where you were just watching this movie just to watch it and then maybe watch it again, you're going to pick those up on your own as opposed to yeah, you were watching yeah. it with a with a much more analytical eye coming to then be coming onto the show. So, Thank you. You know, that how how <laughs> you watch it. Yeah, tell them that. Because uh, honestly, how, <laughs> how you watch a movie and how you come into it, it definitely plays uh, plays a part in, in sort of what you can glean from it. So I get that sure. completely. But yeah, you're, it basically was they made some changes and just sort of hand wave it away. Um, Which is fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and I think sometimes I do miss stuff. I mean, that's kind of why I asked him too, because he's kind of he pays a little more attention to details sometimes than I do. Um, and sometimes I have to see it a couple of times. So um, I'm not above missing something. <laughs> so just so you know. <laughs> hey, we all miss. I miss stuff all the time. Uh, it, it happens. Um so yeah, I just a, a solid cast and performances top to bottom. Like everybody in this, it seems like they are really just into what they're doing. There's nobody sleepwalking through a role. Um, yeah. Even this weird side stuff, like there's there's a subplot thing going on with Albrecht and his, I guess, supervisor. It's never really explicitly stated. Oh, yeah. The that detective Torres guy. Yeah. yeah. Um. Who, by the way, has uh, another one of the me- really memorable lines for me? Because shortly, I think I want to say the first time I saw this was '95, uh, and it came on like 
it came on TV late at night. So it had been out. I, I don't remember. I think I saw it on VHS before that. But the TV edit had a line where they're in the precinct. And uh, when Torres looks at Albrecht, the TV version of it is bull flipping spit. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it's such a great ADR because it's so, it's one of those really obvious TV ADRs that it just burned itself into my, my memory banks. And I, I hear that all the time now in his voice because it was definitely his voice. He did mm-hmm. the ADR for it, but he's another character actor that pops up in a lot of stuff. Yeah, um, I mean, he looked like he almost belonged in, in another movie, like his <laughs> hairstyle. It was like, I just, I remember watching it. I thought, oh, this is very interesting, the way this guy looks compared to like everybody else in the film. But I think, you know, kind of like you said earlier, you know, a good way to u- utilize these actors, especially when they have such small roles in the movie is to kind of make them more character-y, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so oh, I think definitely. It, I think it really works. Yeah. Yeah, you make them a caricature so that they stand out. So you got Tintin yeah. is very over the top, and Fun Boy is ridiculous and and just insane. And then you've got even even stuff like the bands that they chose to have on the stage in that club. Um, oh yeah. yeah, are are very uh, like the the one that plays at the big shootout is a band called My Life with a Thrill Kill Cult, and they are a very over the top group. And so that mm-hmm. that sticks in your head the music does yeah and music plays as we've touched on a little bit music plays a big part in the the world that they were building mm-hmm. to a point where almost every scene has a different song playing in it on top of the know. score and the soundtrack for this movie was ridiculously popular uh okay. i had it i know i had a cassette of it that i pretty much oh, wore nice. out. um and it uh it had well there's a stone temple pilot song uh that plays in one scene and then in the end credits as well. And it was actually off of their second album, but it was originally released on this soundtrack. Interesting. Um, and that song was called Big Empty. You had Nine Inch Nails um, in mm-hmm. here covering Joy Division, which Joy Division um, was a band that was highly influential on James O'Barr creating the comic. Okay. So there was a nice thing there where you had Nine Inch Nails covering Joy Division, Pantera was on the soundtrack. Helmet was on the soundtrack. Um, it was one of those. If you were if you were into rock and metal in the '90s, you had this this one. The the and this was an era when movie soundtracks were extremely popular to buy because they were they they made for great compilation albums. It was usually stuff that you would find in the movie, and then oftentimes they would throw a few more tracks on to fill out a full length album. So like this movie. And uh, Hackers had a soundtrack that a lot of people bought if you were into um, electronic music. Um, Escape from L.A. had a soundtrack that's far better than the movie itself, even though I enjoy that movie. The soundtrack was better. Um, And then the score for this was also, it was Graham Revell did the score. And the score music on this is really interesting. Like, there's some really beautiful music. That music that plays right at the end when he goes back to the grave and Shelley comes up to him. I really just, the music in this, if you're into that music, and again, because you mentioned earlier that you were you know, more into hip-hop and stuff, I can see where that wouldn't have grabbed you anyway. Um, I bought the Dangerous Minds soundtrack. <laughs> it's one of the first soundtracks that I owned, so there you go. But there's, a, there's another <laughs> example. Like, soundtracks, yeah. especially in the 90s, that was a big thing. 
I remember it was, having several. And that one was them. a big one, and I was like, "It's the only way I'm going to even be allowed to listen to rap." So <laughs> <laughs> it came from a movie. It's a fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. I so music is big in this, and and having you know the bands on stage and having top dollars kind of his headquarters being this rock club. Which, by the way, the set for that. So this movie was shot in North Carolina, and the set that was that club, um, and the the upper floor where the shootout happens. That was the same set used in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for the Foot Clan hideout in oh, the first wow. movie. And it was also in Super Mario Brothers. You can definitely see a similarity. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, a, that was a popular place to use. Because the movie was shot in North Carolina in part because at the time that was a right-to-work state. And so they could oh, shoot. Gotcha. They could have longer hours um, mm. to shoot because they weren't, they, they weren't unionized. Um, mm-hmm. and that helped with the budgeting. Um, okay. so that was, uh, that was a big reason why, uh, that set had that. And then they did a lot of miniature work too, which again, if you're not really looking for, you might not notice because of the stylization of it. You probably, um, more than most people would recognize it because he did a lot of the same stuff again and again, a few years later with dark city. And, and I love miniatures. So I, I, I always appreciate when movies do that. It, it gives it sort of this like. I don't know, like it kind of looks like a play. It kind of doesn't. It's a lot of extra added detail that I think is really visually interesting. I still love miniatures. So yeah, I noticed it for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Plus, and it lets you get around not having the room to shoot a car chase, but putting a car yeah. chase in your movie because half of those <laughs> shots, basically the car chase was either interior shots in the car or like the mm-hmm. same corner that they would just redress and drive around. And then they, they threw in uh, miniature shots with toy cars, uh, essentially. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty much how they did it. And it's great because it works. Because you've created this stylized world, you can get away with those visuals to where it doesn't have to look like a real version of Detroit. It's a fictionalized version of Detroit. Because um, even something like the, the rooftop scene where Eric's playing his guitar, that's clearly shot on the soundstage. And right. It, like it, it all it, looks like that, which, again, reminds you a lot of Dark City, mm-hmm. which for obvious reasons is on a soundstage because they're, you know, spoiler alert, not on Earth. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I just uh, I love I love stuff like that. And, and you're right. I'm a big fan of miniatures and I love seeing them pop up and stuff. What is nice is lately I've been seeing where practical effects and miniatures are kind of coming back in vogue in a way they're just then taken and augmented um Mm -hmm. with digital effects but you you can't replace like i i can't imagine well i can't imagine what lord of the rings would have been like without any miniatures and it would have been the hobbit trilogy so yeah yeah exactly (laughs) there's a there's a vast difference there's something about having practical item to shoot um that that just makes a difference even if you take that and you heavily augment it afterwards and and that's a, probably why something like the newer star star wars trilogy the look of that works so well because they did so much practical work and then built around that as opposed to yes. making it completely green screen work or whatever yeah. color screen it seemed like for a while a lot of directors like Lucas um, and I think Spielberg too. It's like they really wanted to go 100% CGI, and I get why they were like, "Oh, this is new. It's interesting. It's fun." But in retrospect, it's like there's such a hard pushback to d- use visuals that are like in the real world because 
you can tell your eye can just tell and the further away you get from whenever that was shot you can really tell so Mm -hmm. it just looks better yeah yeah and you know uh, like miniatures don't always work perfectly because some things just don't scale right but (laughs) if you can if you can have something like um the dam breaking in one of the superman movies uh shooting that as a miniature and then add in a digital effect because we've gotten so much better with particle work and visual effects for like the water coming out of it, but let it start with something that is physical and then Mm -hmm. augment that. That's, that's what I really like. And so I love the fact that this movie, you know, it it, one, it didn't have the budget. Um, but two, the time that it came out, it was going to be miniatures. It was going to have that look to it. And I think that works better for what they were trying to do with this and create this fantasy world. Yeah, um, I completely agree. And even even simple things like the the shot of um, the shotgun with all the rings in it, um, yeah, shooting at the pawn shop to blow it up. Uh, number one, that's not how gasoline works. But also, <laughs> um, uh, that was just like oversized rings being pushed out of a big tube with some smoke. So it's just a simple yeah. little trick like that, and it looks great. Like it looks yeah. really cool. Um, I did. I mentioned earlier about how they didn't want any blues and greens and they did some sort of a, a color processing to the film as well to try to wash those out. So they, they had to use different smoke machines than you normally would because some of the smoke was coming, will come off with a blue hue and then it didn't look right. Um, yeah. So I, I, there's, there's all sorts of fun little things like that about uh, movie making that, you know, you, you, when you find them out, it's like, Oh, that's cool how they did that. Or, Oh, I like that. They, you know, that created this look and mm-hmm. The fact that they wanted this to be a black and white film, but they couldn't do that. Paramount wasn't going to let them, so they had to shoot it in color, but they did everything they could to make it look as black and white as possible and mute all the colors and wash out all the all the cool colors. And then that also really amps up that red, so anything that's red really pops. And you know, then you start seeing the, the way that they frame stuff. When you go back and watch it again, you'll, you'll notice like certain ways that shots are framed or how they use color... Um, sets you up for things uh emotionally and i i love that aspect of filmmaking and proyas for the most part does a really good job of that um mm-hmm. in most of his movies somebody did mention gods and gods of egypt um earlier which wasn't his best work um, yeah that's got some uh i think we've talked about that in the past that's got yeah. some problems it has issues <laughs> um but this this is a movie if you haven't seen it is worth checking out because it is a it's it is not trying to be more than it is there is mm-hmm. there is some some deeper emotional stuff you can get from it but you can also watch it and just take it for uh, a surface level um i i know i did i watched a review of the movie where the the reviewer said this isn't a movie that i can rewatch a lot not because it's not a good movie but because the darker subject matter is difficult at times to take and i think I think some of that, I can understand that. Yeah. Because it does deal with loss, it deals with tragedy, and it deals with revenge. And those are all very dark places to go. I mean, Eric Eric Draven, at the end of the day, comes back to life a year after he and his fiance are killed to avenge their death. And once that's done, right. he goes back to the afterlife. Like His whole purpose for being brought back from the dead is to kill people. Yeah, but I feel like his return and then his... 
I think I think adding that character of uh, Sarah, you know, helps kind of soften that because mm-hmm. in some ways, like him coming back and, you know, remember there's a scene where he where he she says to him, uh, "You didn't say goodbye," and he's like, "That's something you're gonna have to forgive me for." Yeah. And I thought that that was kind of deep, um, because often when people do go, there isn't like a always a goodbye, and so I think that's kind of nice um i also thought it was interesting how like soft-spoken eric is Mm -hmm. like he's like this really big tough looking character despite being thin i think what makes him like seem otherworldly is that he is so tall and so thin like usually somebody of that size you kind of expect to be a little bit more like filled out yeah um so it kind of creates like an interesting visual but also he's got such a soft voice which i feel like is such a like such a goth thing almost like, you know, like a big dude that that is sweet and like sensitive reminds me of, again, Edward Scissorhands. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I really appreciated that about it. So despite how dark it can be, I I think it's got enough in it that is, is light, but sure a trigger warning for some people that might, you know, find that subject matter hard to, to, to deal with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you know, at the end of the day, Eric Draven is a musician and musicians are usually pretty, um, pretty grounded in a lot of ways and and they they can be very like they can put on a persona or a a look but then belie that by not being what you think of so you see eric draven and he's tall and he's thin and he looks intimidating he's got the dark hair um and then he's he is soft-spoken he is kind especially to sarah he's kind to albrecht but then when he meets you know when he runs into tintin or he runs into fun boy like that, that's not a nice guy. You don't want to meet, you don't want to meet that Eric. Like the crow yeah. is, the crow is a bad dude. Um, oh, and I didn't mention this, but this I thought was a fun piece of trivia, the makeup. So they did, uh, the original makeup and they didn't like the way that it looked cause it looked too pristine. So the director, so Prayas and Brandon Lee came up with the idea that he would put the makeup on himself. And then the night before they would shoot scenes that he had it on. And so he'd wow. sleep in it and then come in the next day with it a little bit disheveled and a little bit rubbed off. So it looked it looked a little worn on him all the time, uh, which I thought was uh, kind of shines through because while his makeup has some supernatural abilities to never wash off until the very end, despite the yeah. fact that the entire movie, it's raining, um, it never looks like it's freshly applied either. It always right. looks like it's been on him for a little while. So yeah. Like he's performed on stage with it or something mm-hmm. yeah, too. Absolutely. You know? So yeah, I, this is a movie that's worth checking out if you haven't seen it before. And if you have, and you just haven't watched it in a little while, watch it again. Because I think as somebody who did see it in the mid nineties, it still does hold up knowing you, you do have to know that it's a mid nineties movie. Sure. Um, but because yeah, you could say that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a product of its time, but because they sort of made it this fictionalized and hyper-realistic version of the world, it works. You can take it out of the 90s and watch it today. And you're right. There, there might be some folks that see it and be like, oh, this kind of, I don't, I don't know if I like this. Uh, you know, the weird, like the, the editing style might not hit for some people um, or the, the strange filters that they'll throw on shots here and there, um, especially like Crow Vision. Uh, at, at first, yeah, if you're, yeah. it, it doesn't make sense at first what you're seeing um, because it's just kind of this weird like warped image and it's in black and white. And then 
it's after a couple of times you realize, oh, that's what the crow sees, but then he's got a psychic right. link to Eric. Eric can see through the crow's eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, there's, there's stuff like that, but it, it is, it's worth seeing. I'm glad that you finally got to see it um, so that you can kind of see, because again, this movie really sets up what he did in Dark City a couple of years later. Like this, this directly feeds into it visually. And so I like seeing that from a director. I like seeing kind of where it came from. It's like, it's like going back and watching duel from Spielberg where it's not duel is not as good as, uh, Raiders or as, um, close encounters of the third kind, but you can see what was, what was to come. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, some, some newer viewers might not like, you know, there's, there's the trope of sort of the, the wife's assault and death being the motivation. I think mm-hmm. nowadays probably she would just be killed and they wouldn't add the other stuff. But I think they kind of redeem it when he does, when he gives the bad guy like all the pain she felt, I felt like was a little more validating for that character. Mm-hmm. And you do get to see her in the end. It is a love story. And sometimes I feel like, like I understand criticizing that trope and, and I don't like it when it's overused either. Because, you know, people say, like, a lot of times the the female character is sort of almost written out. But I also think that it's okay for motivations to be romantic also. So Mm -hmm. I'm kind of, like, on the fence on how I feel about that. Like, that doesn't mean always remove that. And I think for a 90s movie, it definitely does a pretty good job with that subject matter way more than a lot of other films would. It's not like watching Death Wish or something, you know what I mean? Right. it's, it's, It's more nuanced than that. And I think... Sure. I mean, you have to say like, this is a nineties movie, but at the same time, I mean, you have to do that with any era. So, you know, if they're interested in seeing nineties films that they'll probably really like this one. It definitely represents a lot of, uh, stylized filmmaking that was going on then and choices. So, and, 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 uh, you know, social context. So I think, I think it's a good one. And I think too, it's interesting to see a dark, uh, grittier, more, um, more adult themed, comic book movie yes that's a good point too you know because prior to this we'd had we'd had superman we'd had batman 89 and batman returns which Mm -hmm. batman returns does get pretty dark i mean tim burton can go a little gothic and he can go a little dark oh sure and returns definitely goes in that direction but this sort of goes takes the the pendulum kept swinging for the crow and in some ways had this not been the hit it was we might not have seen some of the late 90s r-rated comic book adaptations of stuff that is lesser known like blade or something else where you take a lesser known comic book property and adapt it and do you make the proper changes from the um from the book but keep the spirit of it and and go on now this did this movie itself spawned a couple of sequels which um do yourself a favor don't 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 watch them they're not they're not good um <laughs> okay. the se- the, i was not aware of that but yeah there's I actually there's three sequels. Um, wow. And uh, interestingly enough, Edward Furlong is in one of the sequels. Um, Interesting. Okay. Uh, in fact, that one's got Edward Furlong, Dennis Hopper, David Boreanaz, and Tara Reid, I think. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Complete 90s package there. Yeah. No, sadly, it came out in 2005. Um, but <laughs> Well, you know. <laughs> yeah. or, um, and it also actually, there was a TV series based on The Crow. Uh, believe it or not it ran for one season um and most people 
have no idea that that happened. And the only reason that I do is because it's starred. So one of the, the weird things, all of the sequels are completely independent stories. They have nothing to do with the first one other than somebody comes back from the dead and is powered by a crow. Okay. Um, the TV series actually starts off with the pilot basically re redoing the movie, but in a mm-hmm. TV format. So it's Eric Draven, but Eric Draven in the series was played by Mark Dacascus, who uh, went on to be the chairman on Iron Chef America is probably what he's most known for. What? Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, but he he's a uh, he looks like Brandon Lee in the Crow. Oh, makeup. really? Like he really does. Wow. He he's been in several movies. He's a martial arts uh, movie superstar. He did uh, Crying Freeman, um, Only the Strong. He was in a Jet Li one. I can't remember which one it was now. Um, but he's he's been in a bunch of stuff. But it's in, And it's funny that he's most known for playing a character on a food you know, competition show. But he, <laughs> That happens sometimes. That's the only reason I know about The Crow. It was called The Crow Stairway to Heaven. And it was a Canadian production. It ran for one season. And I only knew about it because of Takaskis. And I watched it. And it's also not great. So um, oh, stick well. stick with this movie and just ignore the rest of it. And you'll be fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm uh, I'm really glad that you got to see this, and I'm glad that we got to talk about it. I love showing somebody yeah. something new that they haven't seen and them liking it. But I also, because I knew how much you liked Dark City, like I was really interested to hear your take on this, and I'm glad that you liked it. Um, so yeah, uh, this was this was a great conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You know, there's so many movies out there that I haven't seen. And this was definitely on my like shame list. It's like, (laughs) why have I not seen this? So when you asked me to come on, I was really excited to talk not only to talk about it, but to learn so much about it. So thank you so much for, you know, educating me on this film. And, you know, really happy you had me on and cannot wait to come back. I love the concept of this show and, and and love all the work that you put into it. Well, this is definitely I'm I I love helping people with their list of shame. So I'm really glad that I was <laughs> able to do that. Um, now you have a show, and and we mentioned that earlier, but you have a show called I Love That Movie, and tell people about that because if they haven't listened, and look, I've been on it twice. So if you haven't yeah. listened yet, you need to you need to start listening to the show. But tell people about that and where they can find it. So, you know, uh, on, on my show where you educate people on movies they haven't seen or maybe they educate you on one you haven't seen, uh, we exclusively have guests on that have that love a movie. So, you know, I feel like sometimes I feel like in this world, you know, when you like something a little too much, there's some teasing, there's some, oh, you're a little too obsessed. Those are the people that I want on my show. I want someone that has a crazy Indiana Jones collection or, you know, whatever, because they're the experts of that film and their energy and enthusiasm for it, I think is contagious. So I, you know, I always want to have those kind of people on to talk about movies they love. So that's pretty much it. Every week there's a different guest and we just talk about a movie that they love and there's no requirements. You know, some people are seasoned uh, podcasters like yourself that are professional and then other people are like, you know, my dad, I've had him on there. So like, it runs the gamut and we have a lot of fun on that show. Excellent. I, I love listening to the show because, because of the fact that it's somebody coming into it with a movie that they love. And as somebody who likes almost everything, but has those movies that I have been poked at before, whether it was <laughs> hackers or whether it is running scared or whatever, whatever the movie is that I just unabashedly love. 
So I love that passion that people bring to it where they want to talk about this movie. Even if it's something that I don't necessarily like or haven't seen, it's so much fun to hear people talk about that. And so I really, I like that you do that with your show. Um, and it's a fun one to listen to. So definitely if you don't already, you should listen to it. Um, and you're, I mean, you've done a hundred plus episodes, haven't you? I'm at over 200, over which 200. feels really weird. <laughs> I know it's like I I committed to like an episode a week a while back and I'm wondering if if I'll be able to keep that up but so far so good I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, uh it's it's good and it's I love that movie. Um and uh on Twitter it's ILTM podcast. Yeah, and on Instagram it's just I love that movie podcast one word and you can pretty much listen to it. I've got it almost anywhere you listen to podcasts. So if, if, if you have an app and you can't find it on there, let me know. I'll do my best to put it on there, but it's pretty much everywhere. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, l- me listening to your show inspired two episodes of this show. Uh, in nice. The past, I'm in the past so happy to months. hear that. So that was, <laughs> I got to, I got to show somebody dark city and, and help spread the good word of that movie. I'm so grateful to you for that. <laughs> so, oh, that movie, it just more people need to see it. And it, I know. And then, you know, I get to help uh, fill in your gaps here with uh, with the crow. Yeah. So it's it's great. Well, thank you so much uh, for being on this week. Uh, this was a ton of fun. If you want to be um, part of the the crew that's in my chat room, Phil Rude or Diana or Nisbet, uh, Danny Ora's in there uh, yelling at me about stuff um, and letting me know what I forgot to talk about or, you know, asking, make sure that I mentioned, um, you know, Ernie Hudson because he's in this movie and he's great. And uh, any anything Ernie Hudson's in, I'll watch. Um, you can do that. Phelan is here as well. Uh, Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time, I record and I stream at Twitch, twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. So come hang out and, uh, and let me know what you think of whatever movie we're watching in a particular week. Um, next week, I'm having the guys from The More You Nerd on, um, Drew and Miles. They did a month long of... Uh, anime stuff recently and one of them that they watched is one called Redline. I have never I'd never even heard of Redline but they I both they both loved it and uh, Drew and I were, were competitors on America's Next Top Podcaster together and he he asked if uh, if I'd ever seen Redline I'm like no and he goes dude you need to see this he um, he he did not know about it prior to watching it either and loved it so we're going to talk about that next week and I'm excited because I haven't had a lot of anime or animated films on the show so far. I'm wearing um, an anime shirt right now. Oh, so. that's great. That's awesome. <laughs> I didn't have anything goth, so there was nothing I could put on those guys. I was like, this is black and white. You yeah, know? there you go. But then when you say that, I'm like, I have to mention that I'm wearing an Akira shirt. So <laughs> That's awesome. So I'm looking forward to it. I love uh, catching something new uh, as well. And it's yeah. been a few weeks since I've been the one to not have seen a movie. So I'm... I'm looking forward to that. So that's next week, uh, Redline. On, Redline. Uh, on, yeah, Redline. Um, and I, I can't remember where it's streaming now, but uh, I've heard from a couple people, Faye, uh, Faye in the chat is saying that it was great. So I'm, I'm excited. Oh, cool. um, and I have some other good stuff coming up. Uh, and uh, we are getting closer and closer to August, which um, if you're a listener of this show, you know is a Cage of Palooza. So I am now in the process of figuring out what Nicolas Cage movies we're going to watch this year for the month of August. Oh, uh, Call me for that because I've got a few that I love. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I am I am working on that right now, so you may hear from okay. me soon. <laughs> Yay! Awesome. I'm I'm excited. 
Excellent. Well, until next week and Redline with Miles and Drew, uh, just remember to enjoy your movies, everybody. And uh, as we slowly emerge from the pandemic um, back into uh, reality at some point, be excellent to each other. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>